This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... RPG voice modes. Whitey Bulger and MK Ultra, Athenian curse tablets. And Oswald Wirth and Stanislaus de Guaita. Welcome to the island you only think you remember. Welcome to the island is the first adventure anthology for the third edition of the Over the Edge RPG. It features four original storylines by award-winning authors, each with hooks for different character types, making it easy to bring the action to your campaign when and where it's needed. Launch brand new stories, add intriguing complications to existing arcs, or create exciting one-shots that bring the weird to your gaming table. Take a road trip with an ominous twist. Overthrow the government. Explore the place you only think you remember in Welcome to the Island. It's available now from Atlas Games. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The show notes you only think you remember. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And within the gaming hut, what do we find? My goodness me, it's Ludwig Wittgenstein, the famous philosopher who combined play a lot of hit points, and jokes. If I understand correctly, he does have a lot of hit points. He is a he is a level boss if ever there was one. Actually, he wasn't that level, but. He's here because beloved Patreon backer Gray St. Quentin asks, I was fascinated by your answer to the question in the live Dragon Meat episode about the phenomenon in gaming for which we do not have a term. Please expand on your answer about the levels of narration and dialogue and how people switch between them. Robin? Okay, so I guess, as we often do in the gaming hut, it's time to start with, with a caveat in that I am not sure... Uh, what the practical application of taking all of the different ways that we speak to one another in a role-playing game and defining them more tightly actually is. I think that this is probably a matter of uh, academic interest that someone could get a certain amount of mileage out of and say a neo-semiotics paper than right. necessarily something that is helpful for us to stop and think about. Uh, this is taking something seamless and making it seem full, I guess. Right. Um, I mean, that, that's, that's, I mean, I was going to say, if, if, uh, if we hadn't already invited Wittgenstein here, maybe we should have gotten Charles R. Pierce in, because this is a semiotics question in that we've got language conveying meaning, but it's conveying different meanings in different directions and whatnot. And it's not even, you know, it's not even language doing it. It's the way we're using the language is doing it. If you follow me, maybe I think we need Wittgenstein and Pierce here. This is right. this is going to be a big table, Robin. Lots of, However, lots of birds. <laughs> uh, since I have been challenged to come up with a bunch of terms, and that is a a thing I do, a a, a weakness, as it were. Right. Just as if you, yes. you know, if you want to confuse a vampire, spill rice, and he has to count the. It's like if you want to confuse me while I'm chasing you, make me define a bunch of new terms. So um, it seems like there are two points of. 
uh, intersection, two planes, two axes, as, as it were, uh, that we are dealing with uh, when we look at the different ways that we speak to each other playing a role-playing game. Uh, one of them is person in terms of are we speaking in the first person. Uh, so uh, sometimes you will say, I uh, want to see what's on the other side of that door, or I hit him with my axe, or uh, am I reading this character sheet right? Sometimes you will use the uh, second person. You'll be addressing uh, other people in the room, possibly the GM. It's like, did you say that we could have extra experience points if we went in here? Or, of course, the third person uh, where uh, you, and you would, this is where it gets tricky and worth mentioning because there's the traditional third person where you, you talk about another uh, person's character or talk about another player. So uh, it's like, well, I, I think uh, Rob should be the one uh, to talk to the dinosaur, uh, and you are not Rob in that instance, but sometimes people will talk about their characters in the third person. So they say, well, it's time for Ragnar. Uh, Ragnar's been sitting there thinking uh, about this, and he doesn't really like the situation, but he's going to go along and, uh, and reluctantly agree to this uh, dumb plan that everyone else has come up with, uh, which is, uh, I think, the the strangest and most interesting of, of the examples of speaking in different uh, persons because it implies a different relationship between the uh, the player and the character than is the default relationship. And someone who does it habitually is, I think, uh, establishing that they wish to have a distance from their character, that they're not necessarily comfortable uh, portraying that character or thinking of it as them, that they tend to think of it as more of a playing piece. Often they use that voice when they're trying to think through uh, the thought process of their character and the, and doing that is not intuitive to them. Um, and of course, sometimes, uh, I think almost always, the people who do have that little quirk switch back and forth between now I go down the staircase and uh, Ragnar is thinking of going down the staircase. So we immediately have a whole a host of different levels there just when we're talking about what person of pronoun uh, people are using in uh, talking to each other. So is that complicated enough for you, Ken? Oh, that's just that's just regular old narratology, Robin. That's simple. That's simple 101 stuff. You're going to have to get way more complex and annoying if you're going to get Wittgenstein to, to throw right. down his dice. Well, I have an annoyance ready for you. Thank God. <laughs> all, all locked and loaded and ready to go. Thank, because thank God this relatively simple and uncontroversial answer can now become a tangled nightmare. Right. Uh, because the terminology that we already have for... Uh, person in the written language is well established, so uh, we kind of have to use that. But unfortunately, the other side of things seems to be the best word I can come up with is persona. So we've got person ah, and persona. That's that's the nice. worst. Yeah. Well, at least you didn't say avatar. Avatar. Well, that's because avatar only applies to some of the personae. Why, right. right. Um And uh, <laughs> I'm tempted. Take that. Par partially tempted to say mask. But that's, Since that's a what persona frou -frou. translates to. Yes, that would be what yeah. I would say if I wore a fedora and described myself as a storyteller. Or uh, <laughs> take that, take that. Storytellers everywhere. <laughs> yes, really. When it comes down to it, I'm a storyteller. I, I think. I think. I think Wittgenstein is nodding and stroking his beard, and, and Charles Pierce is uh, <laughs> yes. wetting his quill in the ink. I think they both like persona. That's right. just annoying enough. I okay, think. so we got person and persona. I guess we want a semiotic enough. You could 
put person and then the A in brackets to combine them. Mm-hmm. Oh man! So the, well, the you, different you persona the levels, which is a whole different thing, right? The player. So uh, when you say, "Well, uh, I'm just going to uh, finish my character sheet here, and then I'll be ready to join you," you're speaking the I in that the first mm-hmm. person you're talking about is is you, the player. But of course, uh, you can say, uh, or if you're saying, um, if if Jeremy will get off his phone, maybe he can help in the battle. Exactly. You're speaking to, about the player, Jeremy, not about anything else that's going on at the room. Yes. Because you can use personas in all of the persons. You can it's use personas so in simple. all of the persons. It's not so simple. It's not so, it's a, ta- a tangled web we, we weave when we uh, create a, basically a, a graph chart in audio form. Um, <laughs> and uh, next up, we come to uh, the character. So when we say, uh, Ragnar uh, is going down the stairs or I and you're playing Ragnar going down the stairs. You're both speaking. The persona is the character level. Um, And those are those are the two main ones. uh, And often the ones where we uh, question whether we're distinguishing uh, between them and wondering which to use. So, for example, there's a question of during a fight. Is it more efficient to say, Ray, you go next or do you say, Denius, you go next? And this is a question that I sometimes struggle with. And in fact, I kind of alternate them because to say, Ray, you go next, uh, takes you out of the action a bit. Uh, to say, Denius, you go next, everyone has to go, oh, what's Ray's character's name? Oh, it's Denius. Okay, yeah. Right, yeah. And so I kind of alternate back and forth between them. And the more complicated the rule system, the more likely I am to use the uh, player persona rather than the character uh, persona. And now everyone who's ever played D&D, uh, certainly uh, in those days in which D&D is a, is a measure of, of your, of your uh, manhood, and believe me, Max Weber, if you try and get into this game, you are back out again, has the, are you saying that? Or is your character saying that moment where you're like, they're, they're vulnerable to fire. And it's like, are you saying that are your characters? Are you saying that out loud so that the other, uh, monsters can hear you? Or are you saying all this stuff out loud when you're having this big argument about whether to go through the door because the ogres behind it are now hearing you and they're not going to be surprised. So the, the blending of player and character is not, uh, an entirely First of all, it's not entirely voluntary from the player perspective, because often they think that they're having a fight in player, but the GM points out either to be a jerk or because they're sick of the fight, that the fight is so long and so loud that it has to have been done in character in order for the characters to actually act on the decision of the fight. And so you are already tangled up in there, there, even before we get to the rest of these, these categories of persona. Um, And you can tell that you're dealing with an abusive GM where they're deliberately hanging you up. And there's also the question of whether you're being facetious or not, or whether you're actually describing uh, what the uh, character is uh, doing, which uh, are you really um, slipping on the lamp oil on purpose type questions? Right. Uh, Which brings us to the next persona level, which is chorus. So this is where you are commenting on the action, uh, essentially like the uh, like a Stan Lee caption in a comic book often that you are not participating in or that you are uh, sort of uh, riffing uh, your own Mystery Science uh, 2000 uh, commentary track on top of the action that is already going on. And so uh, this is the level of sort of uh, joking and kidding around and banter uh, back and forth between uh, the 
uh, sometimes the players, sometimes the characters, uh, you may slip uh, back and forth between those, but it is implicitly understood often that what is being said at the table is not actually being said by either the players, well, it's being said by the players, but it's uh, even when it's in character is not actually being said by the characters, but instead is riffing in character. Um, and it's not necessarily always clear whether this is actual things that are happening on stage or uh, the uh, uh, players doing an often funny, but sometimes just comment level uh, riff. So, and whether it's the character's internal monologue, for example. Right. And, and in fact, uh, internal monologue may be another persona that should be on my list that I don't have here. That's its own uh, completely separate thing. F um, and then it's often it. pre presented in the, <laughs> yeah. in the third person, confusingly right. enough. The, a third-person soliloquy. Yes. Ragdar uh, thinks to himself, here we go again, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, then you have your uh, sort of metafictional analyst in that you may be commenting on the what the GM is thinking or what uh, is going on. So you may be like, well, there's a there's an hour to go, so we're probably not going to get into a big fight. Is that the... That is the player talking to the other players, but the in a particular mode uh, where they're saying that, but it's not necessarily meant to be registered the same way as I yeah. roll for initiative. And, and so, it's different from, um, uh, no, you can't use that spell because you, the, the, uh, the rules say you can't use it um, in an evil temple versus you'd better use that spell because we've only got an hour left and uh, this is the big fight. Right. And I think uh, I'm going to put most rules discussion, including rules argument between the GM and players in the first category is in the player. Yeah, persona. that's player. Right. That's but straight up player persona. Separating out metafiction because it's not the action, but it's a comment on the action. It's an analysis right. of the action. And, and I'm separating that out because it's, it might be intended to be funny in a sort of a wiseacre way, in which case we've got two personae intersecting at the same time or, or layered on top of one another. But often uh, it is a different level of commentary on the action. It is not a Stan Lee caption, but rather it is the voice of the critic that the uh, player, that the person speaking has stepped completely out of their participant role into their audience role and is now talking about the action the same way they might while uh, re-watching a Star Wars movie with their friends and uh, cutting on the fact that uh, Greedo now uh, shoots first, for example. Right. And so but, there's but a, a... But an audience reaction of the woohoo level or this is a tough fight, those are chorus. Yes. Right? Uh, because those amplify the, the emotions and they remain... Uh, in the spirit of something. It's or at the very least, they play off the emotions, whether to amplify or to act as foils for. Because many chorus comments try and... I mean, making a joke during a horror sequence is a cor is a classic chorus moment, but it doesn't amplify. It attempts to uh, to be a foil to. Right. Um, but it's it's in... It, it comes out of emotional place, and this comes out of an right, right, yeah. intellectual, sometimes, uh, dare I say, an annoyingly over-intellectual uh uh, place. And so uh, this just may be the player's internal monologue temporarily becoming external and an example of uh, uh, people who love to ruin things or are unable to uh, experience pleasure or like to show that they're clever. So it is something that I would submit to you is often better for the post-game 
analysis and wrap up and as people try to indicate what they would like to see in the next game rather than necessarily with something. the exception with the exception of guys there's only an hour left to play can we get to the damn fireworks factory already uh yes and uh, <laughs> and it's not clear with that one whether that is metafictional an, uh, analysis or, or simple player the sort of practical concern that is really fits in the player persona and i right. bet that if we sat down and analyzed an entire session of online play and tried to mark all of the different persona being used that we might, you know, give give that two different icons for for both a, a mix of, of player and metafiction or where the, the metafictional analysis is coming back into being actually useful, therefore no longer being metafictional analysis. <laughs> right. <laughs> because by definition it's it's empty and uh and just mere time consuming. Right. Or or at least it, it takes everybody out of what's going on and right, uh, yeah. inspires people to overthink, which uh, those of us of the nerd persuasion do not need assistance with. Um, and then finally, speaking of being annoying, the final uh, uh, persona uh, that I will introduce is the uh, is the distractor. Uh, this is the off-topic banter, which may be humorous and may sort of be like the chorus, but it has nothing to do with the action and is more likely the result of a tangent of some kind. And the most common tangent at my table, Ken, I don't know about yours, is when someone brings up for an in-play reason, something that is actually functional, a reference to another pop culture property. Um, so it's like, is this more monolith monsters or is this more Night of the Living Dead, right? And so mm -hmm. the player is asking for a tonal shorthand uh, that is useful to them and helps them lock in. But then when someone else says, oh, monolith monsters... That's really corny and stupid. Why? Yeah, I remember that. When I was four, I went to the drive-in with my dad. And uh, and more likely, this argument is not going to be about an obscure 50s science monster movie. In that case, one about evil crystals. But rather, it'll be about, you know, Doctor Who or Star Wars or Star Trek or, or something right. that is hi highly likely to inspire uh, people to get off track and start uh, uh, talking about something entirely different. Right. And every... Uh, gamer has their triggers of things that will trigger them into uh, to tangent land, uh, but uh, the distracted voice is the one that they're adopting when they do that. All right. I noticed uh, this uh, completes the, the list on our script, but I noticed that you don't have any personae for the game master. Is that intentional that the game master is meant to be uh, using one of those at all times as well? Or I think is the, there... uh, the game master has the the functional voice that is equivalent to the player voice, which is, uh, okay, now roll for initiative, or mm -hmm. uh, what are you looking at there? I guess the other one that uh, that would be a GM only is like is the narrative or descriptive voice, right? Yeah. Where you are uh, literally the captions, uh, where you're saying uh, you're the stage directions, and so that might be an entirely uh, and in, I guess in games where there is shared narrative. Uh, mm -hmm. there are moments where the players uh, take on that narrative voice right. where they're describing or, it. Or in a lot of indie games where the scene framing is done by a player, that will be a narrator voice. Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, in, for example, uh, in Drama System. In, in Drama System, that would happen a lot. So uh, that's a lot to uh, digest. And I'm sure, uh, since I did this essentially off the top of my head and then we've been trying to see where the holes are, uh, that, again, if we actually studied play, we would find a bunch of other even more right. obscure um, and potentially annoying 
uh, different switches we would, of voice. We would have plenty of aquas and uh, and vi- and violets in between our our bright primary uh, persona types. Uh, yes, and that I guess can be uh, Gray Saint Quentin's homework is to go uh, watch a bunch of actual plays and start making dots on a, a sheet of um, uh, timekeeping paper and uh, report back. Uh, yes, and so <laughs> let's take the uh, the declarative uh, voice of the GM in his player persona and say, let's move on to the next segment. They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet from gumshoe master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Balapoc Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The Wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And The Missing and the Lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before or it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press Store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgranepress.com slash shop. The retinal scan that you had to undergo and the background check that you went through hours of interviews in order to uh, qualify uh, for listening to this segment tells you that that segment can only be the Tradecraft Hut. And uh, this time around, a uh, recent article surfaced that uh, many people, including beloved Patreon backers and I think uh, just regular folks as well, sent us because it turns out that uh, Whitey Bulger, the, the notorious mob boss, Boston area mob boss, uh, was at one point early in his criminal career when he was imprisoned uh, in Atlanta in 1956, he was the subject of one of the CIA's MK Ultra mind control uh, LSD experiments. And this uh, is something that therefore, A, we have to talk about in the podcast, and B, how the heck are we going to fit this into 15 minutes? Because yeah. just setting up who Whitey Bulger uh, is is 15 minutes. Setting up MK Ultra is 15 minutes, and then and then there's the intersection of those two things. So yeah. Whitey Bulger, 
uh, is uh, was a notorious gangster who uh, died uh, just in uh, 2018 at age 89, uh, but uh, not of natural causes. He was beaten to death in prison. So uh, Yay. 89 is a good run, I guess, even if you're killed by your fellow prisoners. Uh, he was the head of the Winter Hill Gang uh, and the brother of a politician who at one point was the uh, head of the Massachusetts State Senate. Famously, uh, he was uh, an FBI informant uh, for many years and conveniently informed on his rival gang. And his uh, uh, handlers were uh, in the FBI were not just uh, naive, but corrupt. And one of the reasons they let him uh, do his thing for so many years is that they were on the take and amassing uh, big uh, chunks of change. And when his luck, or rather uh, corrupt patronage, finally ran out, he went on the run and he spent 16 years yeah. as a fugitive. His FBI handler tipped him off yeah. and said, better go on the run, which, yes. you know, yes, because if, if you're caught, it's going to reflect poorly on me. Given, given all the, all the bad ways that people paint FBI handlers in TV and the movies, you know, you gotta, you gotta give a shout out to this guy, John Connolly for standing up and doing the right thing and tipping off his informant instead of leaving him to take the fall and weaseling out later. Good job, John Connolly, you corrupt monster. <laughs> yes, and entirely noble and and uh, a yes. disinterested choice. Not at all self interested whatsoever. Right, and it took a long time for the full extent of the uh, corruption on the FBI side of that to uh, become apparent. But uh, Ken is a much younger man, as we've said already. He was uh, 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 volunteered for an experiment uh, that he was told uh, was a uh, an attempt to treat uh, schizophrenia. It is was not uncommon at the time for uh, prisoners in uh, the U.S. to uh, volunteer to become uh, medical guinea pigs in order to gain uh, privileges and perhaps uh, commuted sentences. And that's what uh, brought him in touch with MK Ultra, which you are now about to summarize. Right. Uh, MK Ultra was CIA uh, program to figure out basically could these new exciting psychoactive drugs be used uh, for mind control or brainwashing. This all begins during the Cold War, uh, during the Korean War, in fact, as they're discovering that the North Koreans can brainwash uh, good American boys and make them say commie propaganda on the radio. And if that can happen to good old boy, good old American boys, surely the CIA can use these techniques uh, on commies or on other good old American boys like Whitey Bulger. Um, the... Attempt uh, varies depending on who, what source you're reading, and I suppose also depending on which CIA guy is running it. Some people say it's just mind control. Others attempting to develop better interrogation drugs or truth serum. Sometimes it's uh, just brainwashing and, and breaking your will. Various things, but all under the general rubric of messing with your brain. MK Ultra is the descendant of at least two other projects, Artichoke, and uh, Bluebird, I believe. And then it sort of becomes a big uh, embodiment of the whole thing uh, in 1953 uh, when uh, uh, Sidney Gottlieb sort of takes all of these sort of un ongoing projects and then the uh, fallout from the Korean War launches a full-on investigation, very much concentrating on very big doses of LSD. Basically, the notion being that it would break down your personality entirely, and then you could uh, be rebuilt 
as whatever the CIA wanted you to be, whether that would be a compliant, answer-giving fellow, a non-communist, non-rabble-rousing, non-threat to anyone, or, of course, Manchurian candidate uh, killer, which is where all the exciting books about MKUltra come in. Uh, MKUltra was uh, very officially stopped in 1971, uh, by which time it had changed its name to MK Search because the CIA saw perhaps the uh, things were coming. And then uh, when it was exposed by the church committee, uh, which is a senatorial committee investigating CIA misbehavior, uh, the director of the CIA. Yes, kids, uh, there was a time when there was uh, congressional oversight. Yes. yes. And, <laughs> and believe it or not, it did not make the CIA any better at its job. Um, but the CIA uh, director famously fed all of the MK Ultra files into the shredder rather than turn them over to the Senate because they were apparently just that bad. And then the United States government stopped doing it and never did anything bad again, Robin. That's what happened. Right. And so this is one of those things where if you use it in a pop culture context, you have to sort of like, how much do I soften this to make it less terrible? Uh, because there's some uh, straight up uh, uh, supervillain stuff going on here. And uh, there's a, a Canadian uh, angle as well. A lot of uh, uh, just ordinary people uh, seeking therapy who went to a particular uh, Scottish therapist who lived in the States but worked in uh, in uh, Montreal were also subjected to this. We may talk about that at some future point. Um, but the effect on most of the people that it was used on was uh, the problem is that if you have a way to break people apart but don't have a way to put them together again, that has some pretty terrible results, and a lot of people were very thoroughly uh, traumatized. But I was picking uh, people to feel uh, sorry for. It might be a while before I got to Whitey Bulger, given that you know so many just ordinary patients seeking uh, therapy were also affected in various experimental programs. Mm -hmm. uh, he was certainly already a, a violent career <laughs> criminal. Yeah. And uh, there is a reason that he was in the federal uh, uh, justice uh, system. And well, there is a reason he was in a lockup. Um, and uh, so this has come to light most recently because uh, one of the jurors in uh, his trial has said that that came up in the trial, but she didn't give it enough weight. And in retrospect, she would not have voted to convict. That was a headline asterisk in the text of the article him on all of the counts that she convicted him for, but would have convicted him on a bunch of other counts. Right. Um, so uh, the question uh, that I have for you, Ken, is did we know this already? Was this a known thing that has just popped up due to this one juror interview? Or is this uh, new news to us that Whitey Bulger is now the, the most famous uh, victim of MKUltra? Whitey Bulger, remember back when I said that director Richard Helms shredded all the documents? We don't know that any of it is true. What we do know is that Whitey Bulger has said this for a good long time. But even in Whitey Bulger's own telling, he didn't put it together until he read the quite excellent book, The Search for the Manchurian Candidate, and said, oh, that's what I was doing when they were giving me LSD in that prison all the time. So, Bulger said that he was uh, undergoing uh, MK Ultra testing in 1957 to 1959 when he was in Atlanta and that he's been saying this since at least 2007. Uh, he even wrote like a, a, a blog about it for a, a web blog called Oxy, which I read, which then in classic Bulger fashion stops talking about MK Ultra and starts threatening people. <laughs> <laughs> 
him in prison writing this blog. The Irish, my goodness, what what wonderful, wonderful people we are. Um, so anyway, he uh he has been saying this for years and years. It's not just this juror trying to sell a book. And if he did uh write her uh this information in letters, it was part of his uh generalized campaign of letting people know that this is what happened to him and this is why he uh turned into a murderer his argument is that while he was on the mega doses of lsd uh the doctors would all say do you feel like killing anyone have you ever killed anyone would you like to kill someone and that that's what turned him into a murderer because whitey bulger not being an idiot realizes that uh, if you can get off on the murderer then uh, your treatment in prison is uh, considerably better if you're just in for non-capital offenses. Right. And it's not at all that going into the mob boss business uh, sometimes downright uh, invites you to murder people as if it's part of the right. job description. Yeah. I mean, he's he's not like one of those ethical vampires. You know, he was his his mob killed a lot of people. And I guess the question is, did Whitey personally kill those people? Did he merely order them killed? I think in the eyes of the law, that's a distinction without a difference. Or actually it has a, probably it has a huge difference in the eyes of the law. I'm just talking nonsense. But the, uh, but the question of was he actually part of the experiment? I think you could maybe if you went back to the Atlanta prison records and looked to see if, uh, Bulger, comma, uh, James Joseph, volunteered for prison experiments. Um, I, I assume that someone has done even that remote due diligence. So he probably did that. And yeah, the CIA was absolutely doing these tests in a bunch of federal prisons, uh, not just in federal prisons. They were just dosing people at random in brothels in San Francisco. So <laughs> the, the level of control impl- implied by this uh, operation in Atlanta is far better than the standard CIA level of control for their operations. Um, so the, uh, so, so I think that we can say this is a probably true thing, although, uh, as you know, the spies and, uh, mobsters are the two classes of people whose autobiographies should always be filed under fiction. Um, because they're, they're just congenital liars. And so the, you know, the fact that he's said it consistently may just mean that he's found a story he likes and he's sticking to it. So it's, it's one of those like, did, uh, uh, Frank Sheeran killed Jimmy Hoffa. He says he did, but a lot of people say things. So what are we going to say? Right. Um, and so this is uh, just a few years before the timeline for uh, the fall of Delta Green. Uh, so if we're uh, doing a Whitey Bulger has just gotten, has just graduated from NK Ultra scenario, uh, what form does that take? All right. He gets uh, paroled in 1965. And then he starts going, he goes back to South Boston, gets right back into the gang scene. So he is allied with a mobster named Donald Killeen, uh, who leads a family gang in uh, the Transit Cafe uh, in South Boston. And the Killeens ran it. So Bulger is a up-and-coming soldier in the Killeen uh, mob in South Boston. Now, in Fall of Delta Green, I have already put a radical Irish mobster who is turned on to white supremacy by uh, the um, uh, cult of transcendence. And so Bulger, given his CIA-induced uh, opened third eye, might be able to see uh, the Gatnathoa infestation in uh, South Boston and want part of it. So maybe there's a Killeen's versus the Lanterns 
a mob war that is occult on both sides, or maybe he is working secretly for the Lanterns, and they are the people backing his meteoric rise to power in Boston. Uh, you can also keep in mind that his great rivalry is the Patriarcha crime family of Providence, Rhode Island, and I think we can draw a manner of fun conclusions from that. So you can play him sort of either way. I think he's he'd make a great NPC because he's he's a brutal monster, which is good. He's got m- very good combat skills. He'll stay alive during a fight, and he's got a crazy CIA drilled hole in his head. So uh, any kind of thing can come pouring out of it, or he can just. Uh, be giving you missions, or you could sort of turn it on its head and make him come to the PCs because he can smell the taint on them, or because his corrupt FBI guys have given up the Delta Green operation uh, in uh, the neighborhood. All oh, this is a little bit before he has corrupt FBI guys. Um, and he's like, look, uh, these guys are using uh, bad juju, uh, and I don't want it used in my town. Take care of them or I'll kill your family. And then that can give you a fun uh, patron operation if you want. Uh, well, that's a plot hook. It's customary for us to uh, end our uh, historical delvings uh, with a plot hook. So it's time uh, to, uh, uh, having concluded, uh, see what other segment is waiting for us on the other side of this exciting commercial message. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Adopt the voice of keeping this podcast alive by throwing in with such Patreon backers as... John W.S. Marvin. John Kingdon. Joshua Hillerup. Louis R. Evans. And Timothy Corum. The whack of the pickaxe, the pith of the pith helmet, tell us that we are once more in the uh, field hut, the archaeology hut, where we look at things dug up literally from the ground to tell us about history. And this time around, uh, Patreon backer Derek Upham, who we did not need to uh, dig up, he's, uh, I think, perpetually above ground, and we hope he remains so, uh, asks us to comment upon uh, the dozens of curse tablets that have been found down a 2,500-year-old Athenian well. Uh, and so uh, this is a uh, discovery that was uh, made a couple of years ago and has now been documented and therefore there's uh, articles about it. So in uh, Keramikos, ancient Athens' main burial ground, uh, near a spa, uh, people have been uh, thinking about digging up this uh, this spa for a while, but uh, a Dr. Yuto Strasak has finally done it and uh, they found a bunch of curse tablets uh, at the bottom of the well. Uh, the remarkable thing about these is not that there are curse tablets, because that's a fairly uh, common 
uh, discovery because in good old Athens, you weren't supposed to practice black magic, but you know, sometimes. Sometimes um, you just got to. You got to. Sometimes you're in love with someone who isn't in love with you. Sometimes you wish ill on someone who uh, has not had sufficient ill visited upon them by the gods. Sometimes you have a lawsuit you want to win or you're just looking for business advantage. And uh, we know this was a fairly common pursuit. And therefore, it's logical that we would find the physical remnants of it because it was a profession. You could go to a professional curse writer who was good at it. Uh, can you and I back in the day... Um, might have been, you know, we could have set aside the uh, the artistic yet not necessarily lucrative world of role-playing games to write curses. And our curses, let me tell you, would have been pretty effective. They would have been sweet because we would have we would have come up with uh, imprecations and gods that would curl your hair. Right. The way that these worked is um, that you would write, uh, first you would address a god um, and you would say, uh, usually, dear a god, Hades, how dear, are you? Dear I am Hades, fine. I am fine. Hope you're good. And this would be a god of the underworld, usually, or some other uh, sort of entity that would be on the on an edge case. And you would write down your 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 curse wish, and you would include uh, words that only the gods know, like Bazagra or Barabescu. And you would put that in just to let them know that you know stuff, you know, give them the old high sign. Right. So that would be words that only you and the gods know. And the gods, right, yes. You, you know that the gods know them and they know them because they're the gods. Yes. And then you would and then you would uh, write out the, the nature of the curse, which very often was about binding people's limbs or shutting their big stupid yap or <laughs> Yes, that's that's been a common thread throughout all of history, wherever we have yes. Communications from people uh, discussing what they're really thinking about. What they're thinking is they would like that person over there to shut their gob. Right. And uh, as you imp imp implied, other parts of the other person's body to be inflamed or responsive, as the case may be. And then uh, by the time that these curse tablets were, were dropped in the 4th century BC, uh, the habit of sometimes having a little doll that looks like the person, maybe with a little bit of their hair or clothing attached to it, attached to the curse tablet, and it would be attached with a nail, the nail called a defixio, if it is in Latin. Um, the Greeks didn't have a name for the nail. They just call it a nail. Um, the curse tablet is called the cata desmos, in case you uh, need an even cooler word than curse tablet. Right. And then, so next time you hear someone say voodoo doll, you can well actually them and say, I exactly. think you mean Athenian doll. Athenian doll. And then those would be buried with someone who died uh, outside their natural uh, span. So you'd bury it in people who died in childbirth or people who died of during because they were babies uh, died at birth stillborn or uh, men who died in battle or by violence because they were the kinds of people whose spirits would go back and forth between earth and uh, the afterlife because they weren't quite sure where they were supposed to be at. They hadn't been sorted and they could carry a message for you down to, to Hades and Persephone and that lot. Right. So that, so, so that w when you die violently or unexpectedly, not only do you not know where to go, there's no afterlife for you, but you wind up being a UPS courier. Essentially. Right. Yeah. If, if you're, and, and this is the kind of indignity that um, uh, the, uh, I don't think he was a tyrant. I think he was like, sort of the appointed uh, shill for the Macedonians, uh, Demetrius of Phaleron passes a law uh, that says you can't be burying curse tablets in graveyards, people. This is disgusting. And he also doesn't just pass a law. He appoints a public official to keep an eye on graveyards and 
and, and report you if you do it. And that is why they start throwing them down wells, because the theory is, well, water goes underground. Nymphs live in the water. They could swim down in the bottom of their well and get to Hades and give it to Persephone. And that'll work out just as well. And right. so and, and nymphs are notorious jerks who are very protective of their waterways and will attack. They are problem children. Yes, yeah. it is true. And so uh, it seems that they are, uh, instead of resenting the prospect of having to carry curses around that they, that they relish that be- because they are jerks and are happy to, to see people uh, harm. Right. And, um, and so they, uh, they began tossing them into these wells and, most curse tablets were probably wax and wood, possibly parchment or vellum or even papyrus. Uh, we found curse uh, papyri, lots of them in Egypt, which implies that there was lots of curse papyri wherever there was papyrus. It's just that most of those curse tablets have fallen apart. So the circa 2000 curse tablets that we have are the ones that were carved into mostly lead and uh, previously, people say, oh, it was because lead was the metal of the afterlife and it was it was a sad metal like Saturn. And, and no, it's just because lead's what survived um, uh, and it was cheap and you could throw it um, and you, you didn't miss it, uh, unlike tin or, or copper or a valuable metal. Um, but uh, but most of the tablets are lead. And obviously, if you throw a bunch of lead tablets in a well. That's its own problem. Yeah, but, yes, uh, you're, you're causing an actual curse right. uh, that the nymphs might well resent. Right. And I guess that's, like, as with nymphs uh, uh, everywhere, I guess that's the thing is how much attention is too much attention, right? Yes. So the uh, this is not the first attempt to excavate this site, uh, but the, uh, the previous one occurred uh, during uh, uh, and in the lead up to World War II. And everyone involved in that prior attempt wound up prematurely dead. Uh, one of them uh, was sent to the Russian front, and we know what happens uh, when you get sent to the Russian front. Uh, another died in an airplane crash, which invites the prospect of a a modern-day scenario in which the uh, players are somehow involved in an excavation that turns up a curse tablet. And uh, we, uh, you know, these curses by design were personalized. They were meant to uh, mess up one particular person that you were suing. But just a whole bunch of curses sitting together in a well for thousands of years uh, has probably built up some uh, serious nasty mojo that uh, that once released causes trouble. Or it could be that just coincidentally, uh, the uh, non-player character that you are uh, enjoined to save just happens to have the same name, you know, that has a, a Greek derived name that people right. still use. So, uh, you know, Persephone or, uh, or Nick. Or, <laughs> yes. Um, has been targeted by this and it's, it's your job to, uh, to undo the curse, uh, which presumably I would think means, uh, going and finding the nymphs who are still ferrying these, uh, these curses around and, uh, convincing them to, to knock it off in some way. Well, I mean, there were also professional curse breakers back in the day, uh, because, you know, you don't, you don't sell the, you don't sell the aspirin without also selling the vodka, Rob. And that's just pharmacy 101. It's um, consulting. That's, right. That's how consulting works. <laughs> right. And so you can also go and find, you know, there are literal books of how curses were broken. And uh, it turns out there was a range of services available depending on what you could pay. You know, if you got a, a platinum level curse, then that obviously that's going to cost a little extra. But if you've just got a, a standard copper or lead level curse, well, we can we can probably fit you in on Wednesday. How's Wednesday for you? Is that good? So it's a, I don't want to say it's quite as mundane as, as literally going to the minute clinic or whatever, 
but it's not the gigantic operation. It's like if you, if you, uh, hit someone's car and you have to go to the insurance company and fill out a bunch of forms, it's annoying and you would rather not have had your car hit, but it's not, you know, Oh my God, Persephone has vexed me by hitting my car. All right, fine. I just have to fill out a bunch of forms. It's another dumb thing you have to do today, uh, in, in ancient times. It's not, um, uh, it's not Dennis Wheatley times. Although now, of course, maybe it is Dennis Wheatley times because it turns out everyone who knew all that is dead and I have to raise their ghost and get them to do it or something. Yes. And, and it's been, um, the effect has been multiplying hanging around in that well for in that well. Years. And with the nymphs like rubbing out individual letters to make a super barbescue. Well, those of us who listen to podcasts know that when the super barbescue is mentioned, it's time to uh, close up shop in this hut. And see what other well. <laughs> and or Edwardian parlor and or Belle Epoque parlor waits for us on the other side. What are swords without sorceries? Nada. What are sorceries without swords? Bopkiss. Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivey. Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that, Shane Ivey, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries. Explore crumbling civilizations separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome death. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign. Order and find bonus downloads and resources at swordsandsorceries.com. That's Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivey. Once more, we wend our way up the creakety stairs, past the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky to, ah, oh my God, is this guy never going to come back? Back down the stairs, back past the portrait, around the corner. You know, we may just stay, we may just stay in this one. This consulting occultist keeps much more congenial hours. Uh, his <laughs> offices are not nearly as creepy. And also, there's lovely Eric Satie music playing, because we're talking again to the consulting occultist's uh, around the corner buddy who consults on the Bella Pock occult. Yes. And today we are talking to that occultist about the lovely and talented Stanislas de Guetta and his pal and employee Oswald Wirth. And I swear to God, we've talked about de Guetta. Have we not talked about Degueta? We talked about Degueta in the context of the Hoisman's uh, episode, which right? We will in have in to... context of the of the War of the Roses, the Black Magic War. Yes, which we'll have to recapitulate here. Uh, and you may <laughs> notice that the the Bellapaka cultist is is packing up his gear because uh, he is officially run out of occultists mentioned. Uh, in the Yellow King role-playing game. When he also got a, he got a text from the other occultist saying, dude, these, these crawlers are amazing. You have to come. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I think that occultist has enjoyed his, uh, his vacation, but he'll be back soon and we'll have to move to, uh, 
other uh, historical figures uh, who will meet us in other huts to continue to explore the Belle Epoque. Um, so Wirth and De Guetta are sort of the dynamic duo of the occult in uh, Belle Epoque Paris. And um, if it weren't for the fact that the player characters are uh, uh, by default American art students, they would themselves be player characters because unlike a lot of occultists, they fashion themselves as battlers of uh, black uh, magicians. And so de Guaita, uh, as you may uh, guess from the uh, the D in his name, uh, is uh, from an aristocratic background and he's a uh, sort of a swashbuckling figure. He is the dreamboat of the uh, male Parisian occultist. Uh, you might uh, cast Mark Damon to uh, play him in the movie. And uh, he just has very subtle facial hair, unlike uh, many of his colleagues. He just has a little well-trimmed uh, mustache, but he's a young, uh, good-looking uh, guy. And uh, uh, spoiler alert, uh, never when he stops being a young, uh, good-looking guy, he's off the table because he only lives yeah. at the age of 36. <laughs> he dies of, dies of drug abuse. Yeah, so uh, maybe he's not so great-looking right at the end. Right. I'm getting, I'm getting more of a Campbell Scott vibe from him than a Matt Damon vibe, in fairness. Box office, Ken, box office. Right, right, um, okay. And so he founded one of the main occult orders, the uh, Order Cabalistique de la Rose Croix with uh, Josephine Peladin, who we've talked about way back in the past in, in the podcast. And by 1895, when the action of the Yellow King role-playing is going on, there is a feud, there's a schism, uh, and he has nothing good anymore to say about uh, Peladin. And as I mentioned before, he is a sort of an occult investigator in the main case uh uh, that he investigated uh, with Wirth uh, was uh, that of the Abbe Boulon, who was a a black abbot, a practitioner of uh, of uh, sinister magic and a cult leader who uh, ensnared uh, vulnerable women uh, with promises of uh, cult knowledge and prophecy, and then uh, preyed on them. And he, uh, De Guita, accuses him of of that, and also, which is something I think we can all take as read as something that actually happens. But of course. He had to add, add a level of, of magic to that. And he also accused uh, the Abbe Boulin of reverse exorcisms in which he would uh, take demons and put them into nuns. It's like the worst. Uh, the novelist uh, Joris Karl Hoismans, uh, who is uh, sort of weird adjacent uh, in many ways. He's not never quite, quite writing horror, but he's writing decadent and symbolist texts. And he's name-checked. Uh, by Lovecraft and by the latest season of uh, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Uh, there you and, go. You can't ask for a better pedigree. Yes. Uh, you, you're not culturally re relevant unless you're on Sabrina. So, Hoismans uh, was a fan of Boulan. He considered uh, De Guaita and Wirth's expose of his magical mentor, who by this time is dead, of being up to no good and decides that his ailments are the result of demons that De Guaita and Wirth are sending his way. Um, and this happens a little before the uh, events of uh, the Yellow King role-playing game, but you can uh, move them forward in time if you want to do that, or you can have a uh, series of events that sort of uh, rises out of that. During this period, uh, Dwight is working on his book, The Key to Black Magic, which is a, a book on how to bust black magicians. So uh, it's... Uh, Something that uh, you know a Dennis Wheatley character uh, might well have on uh, on his bookshelf. Ken, do you have it on your bookshelf? I do not. I do not have De Gaita's, uh Guide to Busting Black Magicians. I don't know that I have any De Gaita books straight up. I have I, I think stuff that he's uh, written shows up in 
other people's stuff because he was a buddy of Pappas. And uh, so his researches, and I have Virth's book on the tarot somewhere, but I don't right, have. So uh, Virth was uh, with De Guaita uh, in the late 1880s, uh, produced what was the first tarot deck to use explicitly magical imagery. And you uh, might be surprised to think, what? That happened that late in the game? Uh, that, that was only the 1880s when these two things were were overtly associated with one another. But sure enough, it's called the Archon de Tarot Cabalistique. Uh, and again, it's as part of what uh, this whole crowd of occultists is doing is basically taking all of these different magical traditions from ceremonial magic to the tarot to uh, Kabbalism to uh, Martinism and uh, taking them all up and uh, melding them together into an exciting uh, occult uh, fusion or stew, as it were. Virth was also uh, a healer. Uh, he practiced uh, curative magnetism, which of course goes goes way back to uh, uh, Mesmer and uh, and uh, presumably by other people before they called it that. Uh, and so in the game, you can decide that if uh, the player characters are unable to get rid of your uh, shock cards or your injury cards, that uh, maybe you can go and uh, have a session with him and get rid of a, a problem or two and, of course, get a, uh, a problem uh, or two in return that you uh, have to deal with. So uh, these guys are... Uh, running around fighting black magicians. Maybe they figure that this yellow sign business is not important enough to deal with, or maybe they've got too many yellow sign black magicians to deal with. And so uh, they could easily become uh, mission givers. They can become uh, patrons for you in uh, your uh, game. And of course, uh, because there's a big old feud, if you uh, go and hang out with them, you'll anger Josephine Paladin. And uh, so if you want the dirt on uh, one faction of occultists, you go to one group, and if you want the dirt on the other, you go to the other, and uh, uh, maybe you can uh, uh, trust that. The uh, Yellow King uh, uh, role-playing game uh, convention scenario uh, features Virth as a someone that you can get an exciting magic gun from, and uh, we all know what happens when you get a magic gun uh, in a convention scenario. But of course, I made that part up. Right. The fun part for me of, of this whole thing is that, of course, Huismans manages to get everything exactly wrong in Labas, right? He paints uh, Abbe Boulan, who was actually, at the very least, a gross sex cultist, as the beautiful, sinless priest figure, and De Gaita, who, as we've mentioned before, is fighting Satanists, as the chief Satanist. So, when we have a powerful work of literature that holds up a twisted mirror to reality, I think that one fun thing we might have happen in The Yellow King is that De Gaita uh, is being persecuted by his uh, alter ego from the novel, who has sort of been drawn out by Carcosa and Energies. And that is a... Uh, or he can have a doppelganger that shows up and molests the characters in some way, and they... Uh, say, oh, well, there was the old rumor that he was a Satanist, but we thought that was Bulan. It, it, what's going on? And maybe Bulan is working some Carcosan revenge from beyond the grave. Who can say? Yes, well, f famously, writers uh, often take revenge by uh, casting people they're uh, angry at as the bad guys in the novel. So the, the thought of being uh, pursued by uh, Tulpa versions of your uh, uncharitable literary alter egos is, is uh, so frightening, Ken, that I think I'm just going to have to go off in a corner and be frightened about it and stop recording this podcast. But I'm sure I'll be feeling much better a week from now when there'll be yet another episode of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrin Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Keep this podcast from being thrown down a well by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Tony Kemp. David Mascari. Jeremy French. Kevin J. Maroney. And Noel Warford. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our hottest new design, Carcosa Fandango. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.